ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Monocule to Market. I hope you've not missed me too much. But today, we're going to go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector with David Enlow, who is president and CEO at Societal CDMO. What a fascinating fella this guy is. Over 40 years of experience, most of which has been spent in the pharma and biotech supply chain, both on the drug sponsor side and equally on the CDMO side. My guest David talks about the time in the 90s and then in 90s where he was at the birth of viral vectors and the start of the gene therapy field and, and what that was like. And he actually talks in quite a lot of detail later in the podcast about a real patient story that kind of brings that to life. He spent a career all over the world. So I was keen to understand what he had learned from years and years of international business. And he kindly shares some of his learnings for us too, which I uh, suggest you take a pen down and make some notes. He's been in some quite uh, complex businesses, which have got both uh, IP and drug pipeline and also CMO businesses. And he talks about navigating his way through that and giving those companies their own kind of separation in terms of identity and mission and vision. He's a very humble guy, no doubt about it, and, and talks about the importance of being humane and empathetic as a leader and not taking himself too seriously, which naturally I love. And the final thing to mention is towards the back end, he talks about some trends in terms of uh, the capital market situation in biotech and also um, some real demand being driven in the sector as well. So, so listen out for that as well. For background, David has over two decades of leadership experience in biotech, clinical drug development and GMP manufacturing. Prior to societal CDMO, he was the CEO at Ajinomoto Biopharma Services. He was CEO at Althea CMO and also served as head of Lonza's viral therapeutic business unit, which resulted from Lonza's acquisition of Vivante GMP Solutions. Prior to that, he spent 15 years with biotech company Introgen Therapeutics and played an integral part in taking the company through a successful IPO in 2020. Enjoy today's episode. I really enjoyed it. Um, I made so many notes because he has lots to share and so much good experience. And I hope you get a lot from today's episode. And if you do, please be so kind and give us a rating, share the podcast with a colleague, or even better, post it on LinkedIn. Enjoy. Hey, David. Welcome back to Molecule to Market. Nice to be here. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, likewise, we, we had the, oh, I certainly had the pleasure of meeting you at DCAT and it seems like yesterday. So I'm, uh, I'm pleased we managed to persuade you to come back and do a, a full interview for our listener. So David, I suspect a lot of people who are listening have heard of you and may have come across you in your uh, you know, incredibly rich um, kind of journey in this sector but for our listeners that have not come across you before give us some of the backstory you know how did you end up in the sector and how you've navigated your way to to where you are today yeah sure so 
I'm one of those really old people, so I have a, a long and sorted past. And uh, I started out in, in public accounting, uh, figured out that uh, that probably wasn't the right place for me long term. And I figured that out, you know, pretty immediately. But uh, uh, I actually wanted to get more operational uh, sooner. And, and believe it or not, I went into the energy services business and this is what you do when you're in texas i think it's you know part of the the passage that uh, one makes and so i did that and moved up to the rockies and then into oklahoma and then uh to indonesia and and uh but a client of ours from my public accounting uh past was a life science venture capital fund and biotech the word was, well, it was barely a word at the time. And, and uh, gene therapy definitely was not a word. And, and uh, uh, this was, uh, I, I bumped into this person again a few years down the road. And he had started a gene therapy uh, spin out of MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. And so uh, we moved back to the States and I was the first employee there and uh, built the company up and up and up. And then we ran into a little clinical trouble and we went down and down and down. But along the way, we had become very good at manufacturing and people started calling me and saying, uh, hey, David, you guys are really good at making viral vector. Could you make some for us too? And um, so we launched a CMO uh, inside of our innovator company um, and uh, ultimately, that became its own company, which then we sold to Lonza. That's and it's now Lonza's uh, uh, viral business, which is why they're in Houston. And um, after being there a few years, it was time to to you know give my baby up completely. And and uh, so we moved out to San Diego and and took over a recently acquired Phil Finish company called Althea, Phil Finish and also Protein. It's owned by Ajinomoto big Japanese company that does all sorts of things. Um, Thanks, David. I'm going to pause you there because I appreciate there's a lot more of your career to go. I wanted to ask about you know, viral vectors in gene therapy back in 2008, I believe you were working on those types of projects. I mean, that seems very much ahead of its time. What What was it like being part of that I suppose it, it was probably in its infancy, I'm guessing, in being spun out of universities back back then. But it'd be great to paint a picture of what this space looked like 15 years ago before I suspect any of us had ever even come across gene therapy. Well, I, I mean, I think it gets worse. We actually started that company in 1994. So wow. uh, it ended its life in 2008. So that was the 14 years later. So, you know, it, it makes your question even more uh, uh, relevant uh, because I assure you 1994 and 95, um, well, I'll put it this way. The first patient that was treated in Japan, uh, I think 95, 96 with a gene therapy, it was ours. And uh, it was on their equivalent of Nightline or something. You know, it was national news. Uh, everything stops sort of thing. And, and really the only uh, gene therapy that had existed at all, this was when that very first um, skid disease patient, the, the so-called bubble boy uh, 
occupation in France, and, and then we were right behind that. And so we did clinical trials. You, you had to find people who were willing to, to try gene therapy. So I opened up, I personally opened up clinical sites in Poland, in Russia, in Belarus, and Republic of Georgia, Spain, UK, all over uh, because of uh, some so much specificity and expertise. And there were just these little pockets of people that were engaged in gene therapy at the time. So it was uh, a very interesting time in history. And I was, I was curious to hear the kind of the spin out story of the CDMO business. So am I correct in thinking the innovator business didn't you know, it didn't quite meet its clinical milestones and, you know, kind of, I suppose, struggled to get to market, whereas you'd almost stumbled into a new business, which obviously was very successful because you, as you mentioned, you managed to sell it to Lonza a few years ago. What was what was that period like? Because I'm guessing on one hand, it was probably very stressful <laughs> as an innovator, but, you know, every every cloud has a silver lining. So was it was it an element, or did you see that opportunity for the CMO business kind of developing whilst you were whilst you were within the organization? Yeah, I mean it was kind of both. Um, I I had actually uh, received, I guess, authorization from our board, and we were a publicly traded company, and and uh, to spin off, I got board authorization to spin off and. Uh, unlock that value. The challenge we had was that anybody we talked to about doing their work, immediately they would say, yeah, but if your, you know, mothership gene therapy company gets an approval and takes off, they're going to have the priority uh, every time. And you, there's nothing you can type or say that's going to make me think otherwise. So, you know, it, it's hard to have two purposes. It's hard to have two missions and 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 do them both, uh, you know, completely and fully. And uh, that story kind of retold itself uh, when I came to Recro years later. I'm going to come on to that because I, it's funny, you know, when you were telling me that story, I, I caught myself thinking, has David gone straight to Recro? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, because I'm aware of that the more recent one, but I'll. I'll I'll pause there because um what what was your time at Lonza like then because obviously I appreciate you were effectively the this the leader of of that business and CEO and then you kind of went to head up I understand uh, the, the kind of viral the viral based therapeutic center in Houston which I'm guessing was that a site lead or was that a business lead what was what was that type of role and was it different yeah. from what you were doing before. No, I mean, I learned a lot from Lonza. I mean, uh, all of the best practices of a large, large, uh, you know, multiple decades long CMO um, were were there for the learning. And I mean, there, there were so many things that I didn't know. Uh, heck, I didn't know what a KPI was. Uh, I had to go look up what they were talking about kind of thing. Right. So, um, but then coming on the other side of that. And, and well, let me answer your question specifically. Yeah, I was the business head there and and they did a good job in general of kind of leaving that nascent business alone and not having it get into the big machine fully until it was, quote, time. And, um, you know, I, I stayed for three years and, and feel like we got that uh, entity, I'll say got its sea legs under it and uh, 
made it a stable, ready for real growth and scalable, ready uh, organization. And that was something that I I felt like that was a very logical point uh, for me to step away and let Lonzo be Lonzo. Where did you go from Lonzo? I'm guessing there wasn't a shortage of suitors given given your experience today. And I want to go back to you in, in a moment. I'm going to go back to your time at, I believe it was Introgen Therapeutics, because right. I'm curious to know what you learned about being, uh, what you've learned about the CDMO side of the business when you were effectively on the other side of the fence for a long time as well. But I'll, I'll, I'll pick that question up in a moment because it'd be great to find out what life was like after Lonza. Yeah. So, um, I, I did get a call from a friend and, uh, that was about the time that, a pretty small fill finish and protein microbial based, uh, protein production company in San Diego had been acquired by this very large Japanese company, Ajinomoto, and, uh, they needed a CEO to come and, and take it over, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, I had been running a, a entity that was part of a Swiss multinational. And so here was a Japanese multinational and recently been acquired. And so there was there were a lot of similarities there and it, it sounded like an adventure we're taking. And so um, we moved out to San Diego in the very, very end of 2013. And uh, I took over this CEO job at Ajinomoto. Where, what's interesting though, to me is, is that um, over the course of a three-year period, and I might've shared this with you before, but we, we saw from one DCAT in 2014 to the same DCAT in the same hotel, have the same meetings with the same customers, we saw a real shift in the way uh, customers made decisions in the in the GMP manufacturing area. And that is it became much less siloed to, you know, type of production, sort of small molecule, biologic, what whatever it was, to being more of a supply chain decision that was more holistic and, and uh, centralized. So um, I went to Ajinomoto's headquarters in Tokyo, explained this. And they had at the time owned four different enterprises, a couple of them pretty significant uh, in size. And uh, uh, I proposed that we merge those together to give one brand, one face uh, and one relationship to the client, no matter where they were. And, and so uh, uh, that's what we did. We, we did that. And that was uh, my my work for uh, about three years of the seven. I was at the company and uh and it was very rewarding. And then it was time for another piece of my chapter. For me, I I, uh, I wanted to get back to something far more entrepreneurial and quick and, and agile. And and uh, so I went back to what I would say is my roots is a, you know a smaller enterprise that can spin on a dime. What just going back to I suppose um, one thing that really strikes me just hearing you speak, David, is you have operated all over the globe even up until your most recent role which we'll come on to talk about i'm interested just as someone that loves traveling you know thoroughly enjoy living abroad and you know just i suppose meeting people from all walks of life what is it that you've learned in all your years from 
doing international business and and actually meeting people because I'm always interested in in either the mistakes that people have made, so any mistakes that you made, but also any myths. Because personally, I find if you read every business book on doing business internationally, they give you all these rules and things. And in reality, I think people are pretty similar all over the world. <laughs> and that's my personal view. But I would love to get your view on how you've navigated and what you've learned from from doing business all over the world over the space of, of four decades or so. Yeah, it's a, a very interesting question. I, I would say that, you know, if I were to get dropped into another international environment today, you know, what would I do immediately? What, what would be those core things that, that have uh, proven to be successful? And also, you know, what would I never, ever do again? And I, I think that Anybody anywhere in the world can tell when somebody is being genuine and when they're passionate and when they care. Uh, so, so those are inter- internationally, you know, agnostic uh, quote languages or body languages. And and um, I can't. I mean, just my personality doesn't let me play close to the vest. And so they're going to get. Um, emotion there. I I think the other thing that, as I think about your question, uh, I I would say the thing that I've done okay at is not taking myself too seriously and letting those that I'm talking to also know that I'm not taking myself too seriously, that, that, um, you know, there are going to be some mistakes. I'm going to say something awkward or mispronounce something and that's okay. Um, at least I'm trying and I'm getting into it. So I, I don't believe that a person needs to, you know, wear the traditional, uh, robes and garments and, and wooden shoes or, or whatever it is and, and, and sort of over fit in it, it. That doesn't feel genuine or sincere, uh, to me. And, and so there's this balance of respecting where you are in the world and what their styles are. And and then staying true to, to who we are. By the way, I mean, as an example, when I moved to Tokyo, uh, they didn't want me to move to Tokyo to act more Japanese. They wanted me to move to Tokyo to bring a U.S. perspective into the headquarters of that organization. So I'd actually be doing them a disservice to to, uh, you know, completely convert over to, in that case, the Japanese way of doing business. The same can be said for Indonesia when we were there or England when I lived there. So, um, yeah, that's my answer. Makes that's sense? A brilliant, it's a brilliant, no, no, it does. It's a, it's a fascinating answer. I was just jotting down some notes as you were speaking. Some, I think there's some genuine pearls of wisdom in there that people can take around, I think, the humility piece around not taking yourself too seriously, but also... I really love what you said there about the balance of not going so far that you're almost trying to fit in when actually one of the things people celebrate is difference and actually your individuality and the interest that you're from somewhere else and bring a different perspective, which I think uh, it's it's a great, fascinating insight to, to get from, from you. And, and then that brings us, I suppose, you know, nicely on to your current role, president and CEO at Societal CDMO, which for our listeners, was was formerly Recro, a CMO that has recently changed its name, which David kindly talked about when we, we, we had him on at DCAT. Nevertheless, I would love, David, for you to 
to tell our listener a bit about societal and the name change from Recro Pharma um, and also just rewinding back to what we talked about before, some of the familiarities of the business model at societal that you have, I suppose it sounds like <laughs> you faced before. Yeah, I mean, at this point, if you do the math, basically about half of my career has been on the client side of a CDMO relationship or the innovator side, the drug holder side, and then the other half has been on the CDMO side. So um, uh, Recro is very interesting because its its history is that of uh, a, a drug development company with its own pipeline that had this uh, facility which operated in order to generate free cash, uh, uh, producing a couple of products for sale uh, through contract relationships and, and profit sharing relationships, uh, which are it, it, pretty unique situation with this one drug. But anyway, that cash was being generated really solely to fund the drug pipeline. And, and again, same, same story as mine before, just uh, years and years and years later, the board made what I believe to be the right decision to to spin out and, and recognize that a CDMO is a CDMO and a drug development company is a drug development company and, and both are neither, you know, in football, they say, if you have two quarterbacks, that means you have no quarterbacks. <laughs> and so, so that spinoff happened. And then uh, they went uh, on a search for, um, you know, new leadership that could come in and look at Recro the CDMO through a different lens. Um and and that's uh, when I showed up about a year and a half ago. And then talk through the name change. I appreciate you've, right. you've done this before, but I wanted you know listeners that didn't catch the DCAT episode. Shame on you for not listening to yeah. the DCAT episode. But but talk about because obviously as a marketing guy, I'm always fascinated, and I'm 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 sure it's a very bold name. And so, but I, I love the description and the reason, the rationale behind it. So if you could share that again, that would be, that'd be great. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I want to make sure I'm clear that part of this was confusion in the market because when that split happened, the drug development company with its own pipeline had been called Recro. And for whatever the reasons, it doesn't matter. And there were some, um, it got the new name. And so here's the CDMO, which anybody who had heard of them, and, and quite frankly, there weren't a lot of people who had heard of, of Recro. Um, but, but if they had, it was like, wait, aren't you developing that drug also? And da, da, it, it was just confusing. Right. And, and then I think with today's environment, and, you know, finally, the appropriate level of attention, prioritization, and, and quite frankly, premium being placed on our people, um, it, it, it needed to be, I believed from the moment I interviewed, uh, that the company needed to, to be refreshed and redefined and renamed and rebranded. And so we went through... Uh, an analysis of who we were, what was important to us, what was important to our people. I'll say this, uh, the last rebrand wasn't that long ago, you know, seven years or so, eight years ago. And, and that one might have been 
I don't know, 75% focused on external, maybe 80, and then 2025 vote focused on the internal importance of the name. And this one, I don't want to say it's flipped, but it's pretty darn close to flipped. We, we spent a lot of time on who we were, who we wanted to be inside of our hallways and, and how we wanted to, to, uh, you know, leave work every day and, and think about what we had done and who we had done that for. And, uh, this name societal came up, uh, as an idea there. And, and then the mark has this, uh, sort of this arc of dots, which is symbolic to me of us being part of a bigger, a bigger good. And, um, you know, we, we get to know that we are helping patients live longer, more fulfilling, happier lives, and also bring in uh, more joy to their families, uh, who are caring for those patients. And, and so, it's a privilege and an honor, and, and we need to take it as such. So that's why our name became our name. No, that's great. Thank you for uh, sharing the kind of background. And it is fascinating, the shift that you mentioned there. And uh, in a, at CPHI, last week, one of the conversations I had was around how difficult it is to attract kind of younger people to CDMO businesses. So it's, it's an interesting move from that perspective in terms of attracting the right type of people that will fit within within your culture and um yeah i'm i'm interested to know given your experience david when you when you turn up at a business like society or cdmo how much of it is a playbook where you feel where for example you go in in day one and you know you're going to do x y and z and part of that might be asking questions and listening which i suspect it is but I'm, I'm interested to know what does that playbook look like where you go in and you know what the first hundred days looks like, but also how do you how do you keep an open mind of what's different and what's new because obviously you've been in the industry for so long, but you you strike me as someone that won't just rest on his laurels of well we've done that before it's going to work every time I might have <laughs> I might be mischaracterizing you so apologies if I am but. I just so, so there's kind of two parts of that one you know what does that playbook look like but do you keep an open mind and how do you keep an open mind to kind of be humble enough to be able to say well actually maybe I don't know everything and maybe times have moved on and things have changed and the market has changed yeah well part of the you ask hard questions man um, <laughs> sorry <laughs> doing your job well yeah I mean I, I think part of the blessing of of bringing a business background to the biopharma sector and, and a leadership role in that sector is there is no way I am ever going to feel like I know everything. I mean, I, the, the most arrogant CPA cannot believe that she or he knows uh, what's going on inside the cells or molecules or whatever. And, and so, you know, I recognize that and embrace that. Um, I, I think that, you know, the main thing, maybe it's something I'm most proud of, is that I don't think that you, that I need to come in and flush out the leadership team completely and bring in my own entirely. And, and this is what we're going to call these meetings. And this is what we're going to call those. Now, as time's gone on, there's some of that that happens framework wise. But, um, Man, I look for what we do well 
and and glom onto that and build upon it, uh, bringing the experiences of the past. And, and oh, by the way, those experiences include bad experiences too. And so, you know, it's like, look, leave behind what what you don't ever ever want to experience again, and um, and then bring forth the other. But we we've got people. I mean, if you take Societal's a small CDMO, it's not a huge company, it's got a few hundred people, and um, I ask people all the time when when somebody can, we got somebody joined recently from Catalan, you know, and, and it's like, look, there are going to be a whole bunch of things from Catalan that are going to help us. And they're going to be a whole bunch of things that you don't ever want to hear about or talk about again, because they make no sense in a smaller, more agile company. Um, and, and those are the sorts of things that we have to wiggle our way through. On the other hand, uh, here's a lesson I've learned is that, um, Employees, when a new CEO comes to the company, they're expecting something to change. And it's actually more humane and more therapeutic to just make the change that that I when I knew that I needed to make a change, it was more humane to just make it not go through a giant exercise and whatever. If I knew what was going to how the story was going to end. It was a more respectful thing to those impacted to just say it. And and that sounds blunt and it sounds crass and it sounds arrogant, but it saves uh, months of people's lives in terms of, you know, getting rid of the unknowns, helping them make decisions. Is, is this still the right place for me? And, and uh, we can just start moving forward. And I feel like I did a better job of that when I joined Recro Now Societal than I had done in the past. It's a, it's a great lesson, actually, and you know one I've definitely got better better at over the years is just being more decisive and quicker with difficult decisions because you tend to stew on them, even though you know what the end result is going to be in the direction of travel is going to be. You often hang around because you know if it's an indiv- if it's a, a matter relating to a specific individual, they're just a nice person, so you're going to give it more time. Well, maybe they'll turn things around. <laughs> often, yeah. more often than not. That does not happen, and I suspect with your level of experience and what you've seen over the years, you're probably you'll spot these things quicker than quicker than most. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Going back to a question I asked earlier. What- what did you, I suppose, learn at your time when you were on the drug sponsor side that that you still hold true today? Because I imagine you have the ability to see through the lens of a client, having lived on that side of the world. Has that faded over the years, or do you still are you still able to play that role from from an organisational perspective? That, for example, you know, just because things are going to make our life easier as a CDMO they aren't necessarily going to make for a better customer experience, for example. How do you, how do you navigate that these days, you know, given it's been a while since you were on the other side of the fence? Oh, I mean, I, I would like to think that uh, those experiences are resident and uh, front and center uh, every day. I mean, I, uh, I feel really fortunate um, and it was, you know, in a tragic way, we, we actually, because of, uh, the earliness of our entry into that space. I mean, I, I really was, Ramon, at the 
I mean, I was often the only non-scientific person involved in a whole bunch of things going on in the gene therapy space. And so uh, all the way to the point of uh, us treating a patient under a patient-specific protocol, her flying over from the UK with her husband uh, to Dallas to be treated. I drove up there, took them to lunch. They came back to our facilities in Houston and I got to, um, and she was in a wheelchair at the time, walk her through our halls. She got to thank our people for uh, the work that they had done. Uh, it, it was, you know, equally the most fulfilling and the and the saddest day for me because, uh, you know, she she was due to to pass on uh, very soon, but she was willing to do what she did in the spirit of advancing the science and. Um, and it, you know, clearly it is still with me. Right. And, and, uh, was able to stay in touch with her husband for a while afterwards. So having that passion for, um, our clients, uh, end users, patients, uh, and, and having that perspective while being in a CDMO, I would submit to you is, is, uh, a little bit different than the normal experience that people in my position have. And uh, so it keeps patients front and center. And you'll see that you go to our new website. It is all about patients. Um, and and um, yeah, so I'd like to think it's very relevant. And I tell clients when I meet them that I have the empathy gene, uh, given that half my career have been spent on their side of the fence. That's a, it's, a, it's a great story to share. So thanks for sharing that because I think... Uh, it's a good reminder to our listeners and, and everyone that you know, we do this for the greater good of healthcare and and we're very fortunate to be in this sector. I think specifically in the last few years during the pandemic where the sector has actually experienced great growth and, and demand and you know yeah, but nevertheless it has performed and delivered to patients and helped us all people from all over the world, which is which is fantastic. So thanks for for, for sharing that. And David, how would your how would your best friend describe you in in three words? Oh boy, uh, I would say dedicated, trusted, and uh, available would be the three words. Or depending on what time of day, uh, they might say very bad golfer. One of those. <laughs> one of those two. <clears throat> what one thing I, I forgot to ask about, but I'm going to rewind back is you've worked for a couple of public traded companies, or maybe a few public traded companies now. That's not the trodden path for many because I, you know, it comes with a lot of pressure and a lot of regulation. So how have how have you found your experience working for public traded companies versus versus private companies and? Is it something that you're just used to now? Because you know I've seen companies navigate that themselves and go from private, you know, to IPO and public, and it can be quite disastrous, actually. So, interested to get your take on how you found that experience. Well, I, I think that um, it's a hard time in history to ask that because of the pressure on public company stocks, and ours is uh, no different, no no exception to that. But um, the the folks that have come alongside and invested in us and and stayed with us or joined us uh, since I've come to the company, um, I have found 
every one of those conversations to be informative, to be helpful. Uh, and, and there's a perspective that is brought that, um, I, I mean, look, I don't call them shareholders. I call them owners to our people. You know, when I'm talking to our employees, they're our owners. And, and so um, certainly there are a lot of times where the timing of, of a shareholder's interest versus what's the best thing to do longer term for the company can be in conflict. But, um, you know, quite frankly, the, the vast majority of the people that I've inter- interacted with on the public investor side have been uh, very thoughtful, very thought provoking. And, uh, and I've been able to uh, ask them some open and honest questions and seek their feedback. And, and they've been willing to give it to me um, you know, so it, it's different, but, but they're all, they're all different. I mean, each different, uh, uh, circumstance and scenario is influenced by different people and different forces and factors. And, and, uh, this one is a different pressure. Uh, it's a more publicly open and available and transparent pressure, but I don't think there's anything really, uh, inherently wrong with it. I'm 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 so glad we got your perspective on that because it kind of gives a bit of color to what it's like in in reality and it leads me on to you know, you know researching you in, in advance of the interview and for anyone that knows you you've got an incredibly impressive kind of resume in terms of your history in the sector and the achievements that you've had but and you mentioned something before about kind of things you've got wrong and mistakes. Is there any is there any area that you continually have to imp- kind of work on? Because I was also like to give the picture to people that you know, even fantastic leaders like you aren't all you know aren't perfect, and actually they're always working on areas of their competences and development skills and that type of thing. So interesting to know either kind of any big mistakes you've made and learnings along the way, or also. Um, areas that you're continually working on to kind of to make yourself better? Mm. I mean, I'll say this. I think that, uh, and, and I'd like to think I've moved on from this tendency, but I, I would, and, and a lot of people do this, that there, we alluded to this earlier. Um, if, if a role and a person are not right for each other, accelerating that decision always ends up a better decision for everybody else around and, and, and the person directly impacted. Um, you know, I've, I, I told people over the years, I've never watched somebody drive off from the office parking lot for the last time after having a tough discussion with that person and said, man, I really wish I had waited three more months to do that. Always the opposite. And, and that's for that person also, you know, many, many times when I've had to say goodbye to somebody in stressful conditions, they've said, thank you. At the end of that, they know that it's not working. And um, so, you know, of course there's some angst and some anxiety and, and some uncertainty around it. But, but um, I, I mean, multiple times people have thanked me and I used to found that, find that bizarre, but, but not so much anymore. And then, you know, on the lesson side or the, excuse me, that's the lesson side. I, I think on the, what am I trying to do to improve myself? 
a few years ago, I, I realized that, uh, and it was through a colleague telling me, David, you just want people to talk to David, but when you're talking to him, they're talking to the CEO of the company. And, 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 and to try to be available and personal and, you know, give encouragement for people to tell me what they really think. Um, I've learned to accept that, you know, I believe that they're just looking at, you know, their, their old buddy, David, but that's not how a lot of employees view things. So you have to, you got to really dig into understanding how they really feel and make it safe for them to tell you um, what they really think, because that's how we're going to improve the company. So, you know, again, finding that balance. And and if I can say one more thing real quick, I, I did realize that there are opportunities to become better at inspiring, uh, stepping into a role that I called it becoming more presidential. Um, you know, I never viewed myself as the person to stand up and, and say lofty things uh, and, and emote aspirations for the company as opposed to talk about what we're going to do. And, um, you know, making that transition has been, I believe, helpful to me and helpful to the organization. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. It, it's, it's something that I think founders of organizations have to grow into almost an identical presidential role where their roles evolve from being technical to managerial to almost commercial to then eventually being, as you, I love the phrase, more, more presidential because actually it's about inspiring other people in the, in the team, which is uh, is is incredible to see in, in your career. And we've got another five minutes left and I wanted to talk about, and again, you've already been kind enough to share some of this at the, on the DCAT episode, but our, our listeners are always interested in trends and things that we're seeing in the market at the minute. Um, supply chain challenges seem to be a challenge at the, for, for many people at the minute, but demand seems to be up and there seems to be real growth in the, in the market. But what, what are you seeing in the market and you know, what do you expect to see from a trends perspective if you could uh, look into your crystal ball over the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I think that um, the governor that's being put on the, the biopharma engine right now is, is just one of, of uncertainty around the capital markets. Um, there's certainly still a lot of, of funding available to be deployed towards new clinical programs, but the levels at which uh, capital was raised the past four or five years was so high uh, that I think a lot of innovators have, have put four and five programs into the clinic at the same time uh, in a way that's different than it used to be. And you know, I personally believe, and and we've seen this. I mean, if if you just pay attention on a daily basis to some of the news, you'll see that um, a lot of the smaller, so-called capital market dependent uh, companies, um, you know, they're gonna they're they're stalling on this program until they're stalling on program three until they say that see the data from programs one and two. And, and so this, this attitude of like, well, you know, we'll just go get more money. Um, that is changing. And I think people are going to hold on to, to their currency 
a little bit more carefully. And I think that that's going to create some headwinds that, um, you know, we haven't experienced in the past few years. So that's one change. I would offset that for our business by the fact that um, there's so uh, much emphasis, deservedly so, on reshoring or onshoring of supply chain to Western countries. So, um, you know, the the expectation that more drugs will be made in the U.S., I, I don't think that that goes away for years and years. Now, Europe also, I mean, very similar. Um, but but uh, the wheels are in motion now. It's not rhetoric anymore. It's not talk anymore. There are real wheels in motion to, you know, for companies to look at ways they can reduce their dependency on more volatile companies countries and, and, um, you know, in geopolitical environments. And so, uh, you know, I think that that's going to be a trend, um, for a while. Fascinating stuff. I, um, at CPHI, when I was doing a talk on supply chain last week, you've mentioned two of the trends I specifically talked about one around absolutely a real trend I'm seeing in the market, David, in terms of reassuring from, the kind of east to west, both Europe and mm-hmm. and the US. So I, I completely agree. But fascinating your thoughts on the uncertainty in the capital markets. It's one that I'm trying to keep an eye on at the minute because it's it's tricky, isn't it? Because as you said, the the last few years have almost been artificially high. Like you know, it's almost reminds me of a little bit like the the house prices. House prices in most places in the world are you know out of out of kilt at yes. the minute. And they, they have to normalize at some point. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's what that normalization level looks like. So, um, you know, will it drop? You know, will the funding drop 10%, 20%, 50%? Who knows? But yeah, it's a, it's a, I think it's a terrific um, thing for, for you to mention and for people and listeners to, to keep an eye on. And David, my final question is, is, is there anything else that you want to share with our listener because you know it's easy for me to, uh, obviously i've asked you lots of questions today some harder than others but you know given your experience given the achievements and accomplishments you've had in your career you know we have lots of people that are listening to the podcast you are uh, either on the external outsourcing side or on the vendor side similar to yourself any kind of point comments or requests or anything else that you want to share with our audience? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say that uh, we're in the people business. Um, These big pieces of metal that we show everybody pictures of and brag about, they're very, very important, but um, this is a people business through and through. We, We have an opportunity uh, to provide people who have a passion for the life sciences uh, to be involved in helping patients with multiple different diseases, you know, on a on any given day, a CDMO employee can can work on uh, anything from you know they can start with cancer and end the day in Alzheimer's and and know that what they're doing makes a difference and matters and uh, and the way we treat our people and and create uh, you know, the infrastructure and, and uh, environment for them to thrive and for them to continue to learn uh, is going to increase engagement and it's going to reduce turnover 
and it's going to improve productivity and bring new ideas to client programs and projects that are going to help those drugs. And, and I think that we can lose sight of that uh, while we continue to shine our cool big objects that make things. And, and uh, um, you know, that would be my big point and, and passion is, is we've got to focus on our people and the rest of it kind of will take care of itself. That's great. Great sentiment. And I was going to end there, but I'm going to sneak one final question, which I've been desperate to ask you, but I missed it out. We, given your experience in the viral vector and gene therapy space, and you were one of the innovators in that space, it, I found it quite interesting that you weren't directly in that space now, and you haven't been for a couple of years. So, were you tempted to go back into that space, especially given how hot that part of the market is? I'm just, because your skills, I assume, are in huge demand. To, hey, do we want a leader of a business in the CDMO space with, you know, in the, the gene therapy space, you're the guy, right? They're not going to find someone with that level of experience. appreciate you have a great role at the minute, but I was just interested, were you never tempted to go back into that, given given you were there for the birth of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I've looked at it. Um, I, I, I'll i say this. I mean, I am on the complete other end of the spectrum, right? I mean, we, we make commercially available oral solid dose pills and, and capsules. But um, uh, Raman, go into your medicine cabinet and you're not going to find any gene therapy sitting in there waiting to be taken today, but you're going to find a whole bunch of uh, small molecule oral solid doses. Now, I hope you don't have a whole bunch. You're too young. <laughs> but, um, you, you know, I, I like being this close to the patient. I, I think that's probably resonated and come through loud and clear. Uh, as we've been speaking. Um, but I'm still involved in, uh, I'm on the board of a small gene therapy CDMO uh, uh, that's UK based. I uh, uh, still engage in some discussions and it's a space that I always will have a, you know, a big heart for and, and will keep my eye on. And uh, right now it's uh, kind of back getting the battering ram treatment clinically. And that's really unfortunate, but uh, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know that I'll ever let go of gene therapy completely and utterly. It'll be part of me and I'll probably be involved in companies in some way, shape or form going forward with it. Yeah, no, that's uh, thank you for your honest answer. Cause I was, I was curious about that. And David, honestly, what a, what a pleasure having you on the show. I, I was, it was wonderful to meet you in person at DCAT and, and get a, a snippet of your experience, but having you on and and i knew this was going to be a slightly longer episode but i'm sure our listeners are not complaining they should be scribbling notes down in terms of learnings from from someone with your experience and uh, i also appreciate how busy you are so i thank you very much for being a guest on molecule to market it was fun it was great to talk to you and we'll uh, look forward to seeing you soon thank you Hi again, thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.